Maccas on the radio. Crocodiles and ruse blokes along the Nullarbor tune in for the news. Someone in the Kimberley, someone down at Hay. Someone with a yarn or two phones from Byron Bay. All at Ulladulla wish the listeners well. Tales of droughts and drenchings, there's so much to tell. Here's a bit of folklore wrapped up in a song. Tourists in the Territory like to sing along. Voices on a Sunday from the far out back. Bulls and Barramundi, Birdsville's dusty track. Cheerful women chatting, putting in their call. Maccas on the airways. Tell Australia, ring Macca. Put everybody in the know. If you've got a little yarn, ring Macca on Australia's radio show. If the creek's been rising or the weather's coming up, or you found a little nugget or your horse has won the cup, put the billy on. Ring Macca. Australia's waiting for you. Been a bit of weather around. I wonder what it's like on top of Mount Misery this morning. <laughs> And all those great mountains in Australia. I know a bloke who regularly climbs. Well, we don't have many mountains. They're hills. They're sort of mountains, but anyway. Our number this morning, 1300 700 222. Love to talk to you wherever you are. You want a hand, mate? Bring Macca. The monsoon has lifted. It's gone. And uh, don't expect to see that one back. But, yeah, we're, look, the average for, for March is 300 millimetres of rain. We've only had five mil in the last week. So um, yeah, I think it's, uh, well, Yamich knows, and you can, you can hear him going off his, off his nut right now. He packed it in around 4 a.m. This is actually a recording I did uh, at midnight last night. But anyway, I'll put Yamich to bed now, Mecca. But uh, uh, it's a... been a fantastic wet season, I've got to say that. I was going to ask you that. Best for a good while, hasn't it? Four or five years. It's been a very even season, well above average, December, January, February. The road has barely been cut to Darwin. Sometimes when a big monsoon will cut the road to Darwin, the Arnhem Highway will be cut at the Maracai floodplains where they have that uh, Adelaide River jumping crocodile cruise. But it's been very good this year. The rivers are flooded. The creeks have been pumping all the culverts. Crocodiles are zooming up and down the roads. It's been a very good season. That's in the Territory. Around Arnhem Land. Good morning and welcome. Uh... Last week on the program, a bloke called Ben Felton rang. He'd just been at the Salt Lake races for motorbikes and cars out at a place called Lake Gairdner. And I'll tell you about Lake Gairdner. It's the, la- the largest of the salt lakes in the group west of Lake Torrens, South Australia, about 160 k's by 48 k's. It's usually dry, but it wasn't last week because they had some rain which came across and there was water there. I've got some lovely pictures of motorbikes in the lake and it's usually a dry salt lake and they race on it. It was discovered almost simultaneously in 1857 by parties under S. Hack and P.E. Warburton. John McDowell Stewart explored much of the surrounding country in 1858 and Governor MacDonnell named it after Gordon Gairdner Chief Clerk of the Colonial Officers Australian Department. So there you go. That's Lake Gairdner. And speaking of salt lakes, Lake Eyre is the largest of the great salt lakes of South Australia. It's situated in the north of the state. Of course, it's rarely filled with water, but I reckon there'll be water in it now, actually. And it's normally a waste of saline mud, partly covered with a thick salt crust. It's a wonder Campbell didn't use Lake Gairdner instead of Lake Eyre wasn't it? But anyway, the lake's divided into two parts. The northern and the larger portion is 145 kilometres long and up to 64 k's wide. The southern portion is 64 kilometres long and 29 wide. The two lakes are connected by a channel about 140 metres wide at its narrowest. 
and the total area of Lake Erie is approximately 5,800 square kilometres. That's a big lake, isn't it? Anyway, this is Benny Felton last week. He's a blind motorcyclist. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Yes, but listen to the speed he goes. G'day, Macro. It's Ben Felton, the blind motorcycle land speed racer. Hi, Benny. Tell us. We've just come off uh, Lake Gairdner, the oh. Salt Lakes in South Australia, and we're heading back to Sydney. Totally blind Macca. Kevin McGee's my navigator, and he's on another motorcycle behind me, and we use analog radios, mate. How was the weather for your cycle and, and car races? Well, it started off pretty good, Macca. The weather was beautiful in the you know early 30s. A uh, bit windy on the Monday and the Tuesday, a little bit of a crosswind. So Magoo got out there and did a couple of shakedown runs on the bikes, and then on the Wednesday, it started to rain, Macca. Oh. We ended up standing there in two and a half centimetres of water on the Salt Lake, and that was the end of racing. <laughs> But it was stunningly beautiful out there, Macca. You know, we've got some great shots of the motorbikes uh, standing out there, and it looks like they're floating on the surface of water. The salt this year was probably the best, or certainly I've seen it in six or seven years. It was really consistent. It was looking great. But Mother Nature, you know, had a way. How long have you been blind motorcycling, uh, Ben? And why did you take that up? Yeah, I spoke to you back in, oh, I think it was 2017 or 2018. We actually went for the Guinness World Record for the fastest speed for a motorcycle ridden blindfolded, which we achieved. <laughs> 272 kilometres an hour, Mako, on a bike when you can't see. Uh, a lot of fun. Uh, oh, I yeah, great I, fun. I, We'd all love to do that. We're all just saying, yeah. yeah, yeah, why can't we do that? God, help me. Yeah. <laughs> Mate, I grew up as a kid in the bush and I grew up on motorbikes and fell in love with it as a seven-year-old and went on to racing and... And then I got a degenerative eye condition called retinitis pigmentosa macker. And by the time I was 25, uh, you know, the eyesight was starting to shrink from the outside in. And I gave up the racing and the driving and riding. And, mate, I ended up playing Blind Creek of Australia. And I was on the island of Barbados, 42 years old. And I'm sitting there contemplating my future. And I decided to retire gracefully. And I thought, well, what was my dream as a kid? And I thought, motorcycle racing at the highest level. So the first thing I got home was Google Blind Land Speed Record and bingo. Blake's all over the world have been doing this for years. So that was been my mission for the last six years, Macca. And, you know, the Speed Week event has oh, about 250 entries, all different vehicles, trucks, cars, bikes, you name it. Vintage, classic, modern stuff. It is an absolute motorsport nuts paradise, mate. It is unbelievable. That's Benny, Benny Felton. Trucks, what a sight that would be. Trucks and bikes and cars on Lake Gairdner. I tell you what, it's one of the things I want to do now. I want to get out to Lake Gairdner and just sample the silence. That's a beautiful thing. And maybe there's a bit of a little breeze coming across the lake. Huge area of Salt Lake, but there's been a bit of rain on it. It doesn't have a, well, I suppose it has a feed, but not like Lake Air. When Lake Air fills and you know, there's big storms and big floods and monsoons and stuff, it runs a banker. Macca says Alison Muirhead, the model of, we were talking about, there's a Banjo Patterson model just been erected in Yeovil. Alison mentions Winton's waltzing Matilda statue. One of the models for this statue in Winton, Professor Mal Nairn, is still alive and well in Perth. As my brother-in-law, he told me the story. Apparently three vet students, three vet science students from WA, uh, there was no course in WA in 1959, were renting a house from Daphne Mayo. I don't know where this was, probably in Queensland. One a Sunday Arvo, she comes around to collect the rent to find them in their bushy gear after a camping trip on their motorbikes, not horses, 
and demanded that they sit down as if around a campfire. A quick sketch and voila. I was out there in 2019 to find it had been moved from the main street and now has the public pool as his billabong. There you go. <laughs> Don't know, I haven't seen that down at the pool, Winton's Waltzing Matilda statue, but there you go, thereby hangs the story. And interesting, did I give you the number? 1300 700 222, love to talk to you. And today, in 1931, the 21st of March, 1931, the airliner Southern Cloud takes off from Sydney on a flight to Melbourne and flies into a severe cold front. The wreckage is not found until 27 years later near Cooma in New South Wales. There you go. Give us a ring wherever you are. Love to talk to you. G'day, Maka. G'day. It's Chris here. I'm with... uh... Jimmy, we're just heading out to uh, Castle Ray to train some racehorses. We would have missed a bit of work through all this heavy rain. Oh, right, yeah. Uh, I've bumped into you a couple of times at a little place and eating a piece of fish, and you said to uh, give us a ring one morning when we're heading out. And here you are. <laughs> here we are. So it's a, not many people out there at the moment, but uh, and buckets of rain, of course. So I'll... I'm, with, uh, I'm with Jimmy Cummings and... I think you used to know Jimmy's grandfather. Uh, sort of, yeah. I'll say. Everybody so knew. Every... Yeah. Uh, G'day, Jim. How are you? I'm good, thanks. They called the slipper. They called the postponed the slipper meeting yesterday. Of, of course, I was just just thinking about that because I was reading about the slipper, and I remember going to the slipper years ago. Well, it's about twenty years ago, and I met this bloke from. Um, He's from Melbourne, and he was an older bloke. And he came. He said, "I've been coming up to the Golden Slipper for uh, forty-two years." This was I oh, looked. This was ten years ago, at least ten or fifteen years ago. But um, yeah. I was just thinking that must cost a because that's just about the biggest day they have at Randwick, isn't it? The Slipper um, must. Well, must, they, well, must they, have it, they, they have it at Rose Hill, and to give you the give you an idea of the importance of the decision they made yesterday, the last time the Golden Slipper was ever postponed was in 1963. Uh huh. The year that Pago Pago won it, and it was put back to a Wednesday. And and what are they doing with it this year? Are they putting it back to Wednesday or what? They put they're putting it back a full week. In fact, they're putting the entire carnival back a week. So, so next uh, so next Saturday is it? The Golden Slipper will be on the 27th this year. Uh huh. And yeah, I was reading about that yesterday. And um, um, a rain event like that. Um, what does it mean for training horses, James? What do you what what? Um, I suppose um, horses don't mind whether they train in wet or dry. But you, you'd rather uh, a dry track, wouldn't you? Yeah, it's safer on a dry track. But we just forced to duck and weave a little bit, and uh, we we. My grandfather taught me to try to have them trained to the minute. Well, that's put us back a little bit. Yeah, I'll, 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 I'll say. So, have you got a horse in the in the slipper? We've got two. We've got two colts in the golden slipper. One's called Ingratiating. He ran second in the Blue Diamond, mm. and uh, and we've got another colt called Animo, and he won the Todman Stakes the time-honoured lead-up. So we've got a couple of nice chances, but they're not the favoured runners. Yeah. But, the, uh, but, they're, but they're nice colts and they're, they're fast enough to be competitive. Yeah, so um, what do you do? You train, you, you, you keep training them. You, you train a horse every day or um, just take them for a, yeah. a bit of a gallop or a walk or whatever? A yeah, swim? We, don't gallop them every, we don't gallop them every day, but we train them every day. We, we don't let them have a day off out of the gym. Mm. They've got to keep fit. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and, and if, if they had a race... 
if they had a race yesterday, they would have had they would have had the day off this morning, today. But the, the um, we've got to drive on, and we've got to make sure that when we face this heavy ten that we're likely to get next week, that they're that they're as uh, that they're as fit as can be. What are the what are the clues? Because you can't talk to a horse and. And uh, well, you know, except Clarence the Clocker, um, you can't talk to a horse and he says, "Look, no, I'm fit. I'm fighting fit, or I've got a sore toe, or whatever." What are the clues when you know he's fit? And you know, as you said, your, your grandpa said, "Train him to the minute." But um, that's easier said than done. I'd take it. Well, we stick to the program. We uh, we get feedback on every horse every day, and we uh, we we grow to understand their pedigree. We see their confirmation, the size of their feet, and the length of their forearm, and their cannon. We See, we appreciate the length of stride, and, uh, and 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 ultimately we've got to make a call. You can't always be right. No, I suppose you rely on the jockey who trains them. You know, who takes them for a ride and stuff like that. Yes, yes, the the riders are important. We um, we uh, you, it's, it gets a little bit dangerous from time to time. In the we actually had a rider fall yesterday morning, just the last gallop of the morning, and uh, and and just the. Foot slipped out of an iron, but luckily she was okay. Mm. She just got a bit winded when she hit hit the ground. But um, but you you've always got to rely on your riders' feedback, and uh, and we we get we get feedback from them all the time. And they they st- they really started to enjoy it, you know, because we we poke and prod them for a little bit more information, so they <laughs> don't just give us the feedback very good every time. Yeah. So you you're a, a, an early riser every morning, James. Oh, every morning, yeah. Every morning, <laughs> you don't ever sleep in. You haven't got a day off, no. No, well, I, 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 my wife's going to get a bit of a surprise when she looks. There. I'm not there this morning. It's, I'm halfway out to Castle Ray, so um, you know you got to keep you got to keep at it. And uh, we're we're pretty used to Chris and I here are used to getting up early, and we um, we uh, we just we just roll with it. Bit of water around? Can you see a bit of water around out there? Oh, there's plenty of water around. I mean, we had. We had in a twelve-hour block. We had fifty mil of rain fall out here at the farm, and mm. uh, I tell you what, that it does a pretty good, pretty good job handling it. But that the Nepean River was starting to rise a little bit when we drove past it yesterday. Mm. And and when you say you're going out to the Castle Ray, that's not Prince's Farm where your uh, grandpa used to live. It's just on the same. It's on the same stretch of land. It's not the same property. Uh-huh. Our property is called Osborne Park, that where we have the horses in training. Um, we have eighty-six horses in training there. But um, but it's the same stretch of land. It's yeah. It's 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 on the it's at the foot of the Blue Mountains. It's what my grandfather would call equine paradise. <laughs> well, he, he he used to when I used to bump into him at the fish and fish and chip shop, as I call it, at, at Claude's and. Uh, He'd say, Mackie, you better come out. Uh, you better come out the farm. Uh, you better come out the farm." But I never, I never did make it for one reason or another. Um, no, you would have enjoyed it. Yeah, I'll say. Looked a lovely, uh, and Saintly was running around there too, wasn't he? Yeah, he was a great horse, Saintly. Yeah, Fantastic I'll, horse. I'll mm. say. He was. Uh, he was. Uh, he was. He used to stay up there, didn't he, Saintly? And he did. He was. He was. He was born and he was born and bred there, and uh, and and owned by. My grandfather, and he, he went on to win a Cox Plate in the Melbourne Cup. James, nice to talk to you and Chris too. And uh, yeah, had good luck with your horses today, uh, training, and and good luck in the slipper. Uh, I'll 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 watch with interest, and let's hope the rain sort of um, calms down a bit, so the uh, the, the track will probably be uh, heavy, but just how heavy? Let's hope not too Thanks. heavy. Thanks, Maka. That's great. They're in the blue colours, so give them a cheer, please. <laughs> okay, I will. Good on you, James. Nice to talk to you. Bye-bye. Bye.
This is the All Over News. This month, Wednesday the 31st of March in fact, marks the centenary in Australia of the RAAF, the Royal Australian Air Force. Air Force 2021 is planning a series of national events to mark the sacrifice and service of the last 100 years. There'll be a spectacular mass aircraft flypast over Lake Burley Griffin between 10.30 and 12 on the 31st and more than 60 aircraft will fly in waves over the lake. That'll be live on ABC TV, but it'd be great to be there, wouldn't it, to see that? Interesting to contemplate that there was a time when we built aircraft here, albeit plywood gliders and the link trainer, in Australia. Now, as you know, Slazenger used to make tennis rackets here in Australia. What's that got to do with aircraft manufacture, particularly plywood gliders? You've probably made the link already. Meet Rowan Goyne, who has just completed an article for the Military Historical Society of Australia, and he knows all about it. The Royal Australian Air Force put out an urgent request for transport aircraft because there was, in 1942, there was the perception of an imminent invasion of the north of Australia by the Japanese, and uh, we didn't have any transport aircraft available in any great numbers to transport troops. So they issued a, an urgent uh, contract for the construction of a glider. So in response to the request from the RAF, De Havilland put together their chief designer and a stressing expert, and the Slazenger Sports Company, which your listeners may remember, at the time was busily producing tennis and squash rackets uh, out of plywood so that they knew how to work with plywood. They provided a four-person, a drafts person, and the rest of the labour force, as well as uh, vitally important, was the woodworking equipment. So the equipment able to, to bend the plywood under pressure to, to, to make fuselages and things like that. This is a good example of where, in response to an urgent request with an imminent threat to the country, a couple of companies get together and respond to it. The gliders were produced in a factory on the fifth floor of the Bradford Cotton Mills factory on the corner of Miserden Road and Parramatta Road in Sydney. And the building's still there. It's been converted into luxury apartments, which may interest your listeners. So that led to, within the space of six months, two prototypes had been produced for the RAAF and they were delivered to them and they put in an order and the first of that was delivered to the RAF subsequently in May 43 with another five in July. I understand you were looking for information yep. but de Havilland in Britain had no information about anything that happened in Australia so you had to rely on the good offices of, of you know ordinary Australians and was that was yep. that interesting? I bet it was. Well it was an eye-opener I must admit the de Havilland Corporate Museum in Britain quickly replied to me and said oh no we don't carry any uh, information about the activities of our subsidiary in Australia during the Second World War and suggest and really gave me gave me nowhere to go. So then I contacted your good selves to make an appeal to your listeners because there's that great storehouse of private sources that are held within the country, uh, which outweigh the sources held in public held in public institutions such as state libraries and the National Library. It was interesting that de Havilland in Britain didn't keep any records. I'd like to know whether de Havilland corporate records for a subsidiary here went. They had significant uh, contracts with the Australian government during the Second World War, for example, the production of the Mosquito exactly. and these gliders and other aircraft as well, the, the Dragon Rapide transport and ambulance aircraft, they produced that as well for the RAF under under contract. So I find it perplexing they didn't hold the records, but they, they must be out there somewhere. Exactly. All right, Ron, we'll keep up the good works. What's your next project? I'm researching the role of New South Wales Department of Main Roads in the Second World War 
They constructed airfields in places like New Caledonia and Norfolk Island, far north Queensland and the Northern Territory. Roads and airfields for the Commonwealth, but also for the US and French governments. So I'm looking for material on the Department of Own Roads in New Caledonia. So if anyone's got any private uh, photographs of that would be, and anyone who might have had a relative who worked on it would be extremely interesting. Because these were Australian citizens who served overseas, basically in an operational, forward operational area in New Caledonia at the time when the Japanese were threatening Port Moresby and bombing Darwin. So it's, uh, I stumbled upon a book written by Michael Terry uh, called Bulldozer, which covers in sort of like brief colourful history the work of DMR, but I'm after the full picture if you know what I mean. So that's one of the things I'm currently working on. Yeah. Rowan, when I first talked to you, you used a word to describe yourself. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a recreational historian. I've broadened myself from military historian. I write about space history. I'm also doing some history walk talks here in the Canberra for the upcoming Heritage Festival, and one of them's on walking in the footsteps of Curtin and Chifley between Old Parliament House and the Hotel Currajong, where we talk about the role of Tiffley and Curtin during the Second World War when Curtin stood up to FDR and Churchill and returned the 6th and 7th Divisions from the Middle East, again, when it, when it was in our most desperate hour. And that included my grandfather, actually, because he was serving with the 7th at the time. So um, I'm glad he came back, put it that way. <laughs> That's, at least I'm here, if you know what I mean. I do. Yeah. Ryan Goyne, thanks very much. You can keep up the good work. Yeah, thanks, Ian. Recreational historian, Rowan Goyne. Sunday morning's a great morning for swimming. Well, every morning is, I suppose, and large groups like the Bold and the Beautiful, I know, and the Bondo Icebergs and the Brighton Icebergers do it all over Australia. All over Australia, large groups of Aussies are in the swim, if you like. But it's the individuals that most fascinate me, like a bloke called Johnny Van Wisser, who last week, for some unknown reason, swam the Derwent from New Norfolk Bridge, I think, to Hobart. It was pitch dark. There was a bit of mist around. He couldn't see where he was going. So a number of times he just swam into the bank and then had to go back out and go the wrong way. He still broke the record. What is it about swimming? that makes people swim in the middle of the night in freezing cold water and conditions. It must be just for the fun of it. He's on the line. Good morning, Johnny Van Wisser. Morning, Mac. How are you, mate? I'm good. How come? Why did you want to swim the Derwent? Because it was there. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess. It's actually part of the Australian Triple Crown now, Macca, which is, if you're an American swimmer, the Triple Crown is the English Channel, the swim race around Manhattan and Catalina in LA. Now, the Australian Marathon Committee started an Australian version, so the Derwent is one of the three of the Australian Triple Crowns that's becoming quite popular. So I've actually um, coached the oldest Australian Aussie to do the, the Triple Crown, the American version, and he's originally from Tasmania. So he told me seven weeks ago that he'll sponsor it all and, and uh, he wants to be part of the crew and he'll get a team together and he wanted me to have a crack at the record for the Derwent. So I got short notice and just kind of like I uh, had to jump from 10k a week to 10k a day, you know, seven weeks ago and had a, had a crack and it, and it came off. So, What are the other two legs? If the Derwent's one of the legs for the Triple Crown, what are the other two Australian legs? Shelley Beach in New South Wales and Fremantle to Rottnest. So it's part of the Rottnest Islands, but an extra 5k. That one's 25k. The Derwent's 34k. And I think the Shelley Beach one's about 30k. Tell me this. When did you get the swimming bug? You've obviously got it because I can tell people all the things you've done, but when did you get the swimming bug? We were chucked in as kids. You know, we were drown proof at six weeks old, my sister and I. 
we didn't have much choice. Ironically, the Harold Hopeful back in Melbourne, so we've been swimming all our lives, and you know, I, I was involved with lifesaving when I was when I was a teenager and full swimming, and probably did my first marathon swim. I reckon about I reckon it would have been 19 or something across Port Phillip Bay for Port Arlington and the Franks, which was like 40k. And then some English Channel, and one thing led to the next. I don't know if you still are, but you were the world record holder for the ultra marathon, which was uh, run to Dover, swimming to Calais, and riding your bike to the Arc de Triomphe. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I lost my record, though, but uh, hopefully I'll be able to get it back one day. So it's called the Arch Sharks. You start in the Marble Arch of London, and then you run 140k to the English Channel. Then you ride from uh, Calais to the Arc de Triomphe in Paris. So it's called the Arch Arc because you start in the Marble Arch of London, and then you hopefully finish um, the Arc de Triomphe in Paris. Ah, uh, dear, I did. Apart oh. from being cold, what was it like swimming in the Derwent? Yeah, it was pretty good. We started at uh, 3 in the morning, so it was pitch black. That was pretty hard work because yeah, we had the big spotlights in your eyes and it was quite thin at the start. You start at the uh, new Norfolk Bridge. It's probably only 50, 100 metres across. So I, hit, <laughs> I made a few wrong turns and hit the shore a few times, had to swim back out. Because, yeah, we were basically... <laughs> It's like the blind leading the blind at the start. It was just pitch black. And, but it's a beautiful strip of water and yeah, you get a bit of a current at the end, so that was nice. And You finish at the... Tasman Bridge, which is quite famous, that's the bridge you finish at. Johnny, can I ask you how old you are, and is there an age where you can stop doing this sort of stuff? I'm, I'm 48 now, so I still feel pretty good, though. So I, I think I swam pretty good on Monday, so you just don't know. I mean, I've only been this age once, so I'm just doing my best. And yeah, I, don't, I, mean, so I don't do it all the time now. I used to do it full on when I was young, so now I just pick events here and there and train up for them, and I'm not doing them like every week now when I was a young fella, so... A lot of people north of the New South Wales-Victorian border are going to complain when the water temperature gets down to 18 or 17. You're routinely swimming. It's about 10 degrees, I suppose, is it? Oh, in the bay in winter, it gets to 10 and under because Port Phillips Bay is shallow. So in summer, it gets to probably 23, 24. and winter, it gets can get you know under 10, get to 8 degrees because it's uh, not much water to heat up and cool down. So, yeah, so the bay gets really cold in winter and really warm in summer. What's your next uh, adventure? I'm hoping to do Loch Ness down the track, but obviously at the moment with the way the world is, we don't know what's going on, but that'd be a nice goal. And long term, I'd like to have another crack at the Arch Shark, which is a big triathlon. But yeah, as we talk about old age, I've had Achilles tendonitis, so I haven't been able to run for over a year. So I'm hoping that heals up. So I need that to heal up and yeah, the COVID to go away. And Johnny Van Wisser, great to talk to you, mate, and good luck in the future. Ring us from wherever you are if you're going to swim around Santorini or something like that. <laughs> no worries, mate. Thanks for having me on. And while we're in the water, I'm reminded of one of our listeners, Graham Middleton who actually swam the entire length of the Mighty Murray in 91-92. He would ring me from time to time on his journey from the banks of the Murray just before he got in the water again. And he once described it as swimming in Carlton cold drinking water, a monumental effort of 138 days. G'day, this is Macca. G'day, Macca. John from the Garlic and Tomato Festival in Selborne, Tasmania. How are you? The Garlic and Tomato Festival. Yeah, we spoke briefly last year and about 100 people came up and said to me, oh, I had John Macken this morning. And I'm like, oh, that worked. <laughs> yeah, it's another big day out at Selborne. And I'm with you on the shows too. You know, this is a, a classic community thing where a group of people said, oh, we should promote our farm. And then other people said, oh, we'll give you a hand. And that was seven years ago. Uh-huh. And this year, and this year, 2,000 people will come through the gates. It's limited because of COVID. Uh. But they're there, to, they're there to see just so many different things. And, you know, being a farm-based show, the biggest thing that people love is walking through the tomato and garlic crop with the farmers, <laughs> yeah. talking about what went wrong this year, 80% down <laughs> on the crop. Really? It's just like, yeah, yeah, it's been a hell of a year. It does. Even at my place, I reckon 
the rats and the birds have eaten more of my tomatoes than I have. And what? Why is uh, that? No rain or too much rain or what? No, no, it's been a great year. It's just um, it's not been intense enough with the sunshine. I think that's what it is. The heat hasn't been enough, and um, you know that's just the way it is. You've yeah. got to you know you've got to share it with with nature, and uh, and some years are good. Like this year was a a great year for quinces and apples and hops, and it wasn't a good year for the. But you know, just thinking about your community comment there a minute ago, Macca. Yeah. Long gone are the days where it's just grow the sheep and shear the wool. Now, now the people that are coming today with sheep, they're also shearing the wool, and they're making cheese, and then they're taking the excess and making vodka. So, you know, <laughs> we are, we are such a clever bunch, we Australians. You know, we're not just going to take it on the chin. And yes, we'll have flood and famine and you know all this kind of stuff, but. We bounce back. We're pretty resilient. Like we spent a hundred hours with government departments on a COVID plan. You just wouldn't do it otherwise because it's a community-based event. There's no multinationals coming. Um, it's all about driving right money back into the local community and really good produce. So, you know, the chefs that are coming are from the local vineyard. The, um, the the lady that understands edible plants in Australia, she'll be there doing talks all day. And you know, we have a I big should be, we, should, we should be there, Johnny. Now, this, no, this next is, year, mate. Next this year, is we, a, we did next ask year. your producer. Yeah, next year live, mate. It'll blow your mind. And the other experts that are there. Yeah, it's just, it is a staggering event. And I get to work all around Australia doing Master of Ceremony works, and this one's a biggie. So, mate, we'd welcome you with open arms. So this is Selborne, which is near Lonnie, is that right? Yeah, just just near Westbury. It's a beautiful part of the world, and the council's got on board this year and really, really, really done their bit. And so um, Events Tasmania from the state government. So when they help you, you know you're doing the right thing, mate. Good on you, John. Good luck, mate. Cheers, mate. See you, mate. Bye. Bye. Good morning, Macca. It's Vera here. Hello, Vera. <laughs> I tell you what, the Macca sign down at the Mongalo River, it's swimming. <laughs> it's 20, 20 metres up from the um, the normal river um, height, but um, yeah, the banks broke yesterday and uh, I don't know whether I'll be able to get out today um, to do... We've got a radio show in Braidwood um, on the barbed wireless, but um, right. yeah, had 260 mils just this week. You're near um, Braidwood, right? That's right. Yep. yep. About 15 k's from Braidwood. And what's the river? The Mongalo. It's called the Mongalo. It's called the Mongalo River. Yeah, it rises in the Mongol Rainforest and then it flows to the Shoalhaven. Uh-huh. Yeah. No, it's uh, really, really high. It's Did... um, roaring. Vera rang us, ladies and gentlemen, the other day and, and told us, amongst other things, about um, eucalyptus recurva. Did you hear the little That's thing right. about eucalypt day? on? It's Tuesday's eucalypt day. You bet. Yeah. You bet. Yeah, I'm going to celebrate. Yeah, me too. I'm going to plant one, actually. Oh, good on you. <laughs> well, I just I just think they're so they're wonderful. I mean, I've got a lovely uh, gum tree in the backyard, and as I tried to explain, when it flowers, it's a pink flowering ironbark. It's got this black trunk, and it's it's a bit daggy as sometimes they get. Um, but when it flowers, it's like a tree full of pink and grey galahs because the foliage yeah. is sort of grey-green, very more grey yeah. than green. Yeah. And it's lovely pink, and when it has a good fol- um, flowering, it's just a, be- a thing of beauty. And then yeah. you see all these snappy gums and white gums, and uh, it's just yeah, you- I've got l- I've got lots of snappy gums here, and um, peppermints and uh, scribbly barks, and I've got a big bunch of eucalyptus caesia pods just sitting in a a pot because they're so beautiful. Mm. And um, I've had a second flush of baronia. Um, normally, um, I only get baronia here in uh, October, but um, all the wet weather's woken it up again. Yeah, go. so it's amazing. All right. Well, look, uh, 
Lovely to talk to you, Vera. Um, yeah. I wish I could have a look at the Mongalo River. Um, well, you should come down sometime. I will, at, uh, but probably the river will be up now, but it'll be down by the... Hopefully, although there's a bit of rain still around, apparently. Yep, yep, yep. I think we've got uh, wet, wet, wet forecast for the next week. Yeah, all right. Lovely to talk mm. to you. Lovely. Okay, to lovely to talk to you again, too. Good on you. Rightio. Bye. See ya. Ian's at Lake Barrington in Tasmania. Good morning, Ian. Macca, good morning. I'm uh, standing on the water's edge at one of the most serene and picturesque pieces of rowing water on the planet in uh, Lake Barrington, northwest of Tasmania. Mate, uh, Mark uh, Campbell calls it God's rowing, God, God, <laughs> God's rowing course. <laughs> well, 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 Mark, my name's Ian, so you can call me Robbo, but um, there is a beautiful little sign about a kilometre out from the uh, top of the hill before you come down, and it is appropriately signposted the promised land. <laughs> and uh, that's after you go past a sign that, points to another town called Nowhere Else. So um, a little bit of sense of humour, but it is it is serene and beautiful here. And uh, and uh, we're, we've got a big week of racing ahead of us, Macca. We, we cancelled our championship, sadly, this time last year. Uh, so it's the first time since 2019 that the Australian Rowing Championships are being staged. And uh, we're just so thrilled to be able to do so here in Tasmania. You haven't been doing that for a while. No, the, the regattas around the country, Macca, have largely been unaffected. Um, the rowing season sort of runs to the end of March. So when the COVID shutdown came last year, most of the regattas had, had got away. But uh, the Nationals uh, suffered, sadly. So uh, we, we're thrilled to have everybody from, from school crews to all the way through to our Olympic and Paralympic athletes who are finalising their preparations for Tokyo here and able and para-bodied uh, athletes as well, Maka. So it's a very inclusive event. And is that because they didn't want them to travel state-wise, you know, interstate and stuff? Or is it because the, when you're in a, a rowing eight, you're sitting right next to one another or what? Yeah, it's a bit. It's, it's interesting you say, Mac. It's a literally a little bit of that. So the 1.5 meter of social distancing, I think, in a, in an eight, it's 1.3 meters. So for a, for a while, there's been a lot of negotiation with with public health authorities on a state by state basis, and even the Coxes, in some instances, for a while there were were wearing masks. But uh, things have settled, thankfully, and and. Uh, with the border closures uh, settling and we continue to cross our fingers and toes that we all stay healthy. Uh, it's been an epic exercise. Uh, I pulled in here Thursday morning behind the two trailers that had arrived from Western Australia, Macca. That's a week-long trip, 3,600 kilometres to get here. So it tells you the, the, the intent and, and the desire for people want to be part of this this event. Yeah. Uh, look, I think it's a great... I never did rowing, of course, because in some ways I think it's got a... A, a reputation that it's something to do with private schools, and I suppose it has been. But gee, I I, I wish rowing was uh, really truly national sport in terms of going to all schools. Because look, I, I think every school. I mean, our school was at Cogra, but it's, it's not far to some water where we are. And even if you're on the Darling, you know, when there's water in it, you could row anywhere in Australia, really. Um, so I just yeah, it's it's a one wonderful sport. Because I remember talking to this bloke, and he said. Uh, Macca, our eight got together um, after four, 30 or 40 years, whatever. You know, they had a reunion and, and they yep. all got together. He said, and we sat in the thing, he said, and just <laughs> after about, he said, a minute, he said, we just got into sync and it was just like we'd never left. <laughs> just an amazing <laughs> thing. You know, he said, we just, we're all in sync and bang. Up the boat sat up and away, you know, the, the shell sat up and away we went. And he said, it was like we're, you know, 35 years ago, we'd, and we'd never been together since, but yeah, it just sticks with you, doesn't 
it's uh, that's that's the beauty of it. But Mac, you do speak to a challenge, which as 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 the governing body of the sport nationwide, we're working closely with our state associations and clubs. And indoor rowing is a is a really growing and exciting avenue for the sport, and, and also a new uh, element, coastal rowing, which we hope will be in the Olympics by 2028. And 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 even more excitedly, if if the Brisbane bid lands for 2032, some some rowing uh, off off the coast of of Queensland as part of the Olympics. But uh, for for this event, it's it's the it's the 2K course. It's uh, it's an honest, uh, brutal challenge of of intent and fitness and attitude. And uh, as I say, for the Olympic athletes, the beauty here, Maka, there's no sort of um, you know exclusive uh, barriers behind where the Olympic athletes are in the boatyard here performing. Everyone mucks in. It's just a great all-in event. And uh, the the skills of rowing, particularly resilience and teamwork, stand everybody in good stead for the challenges of life. And also getting up early and getting out in the water and being part of the environment. I mean, that's that's the other thing about it too. I mean, it's a pain in the bum to get up at four, but <laughs> once you you know once you're there, um, it's just it's, it's just magic, magic. And it's it's serene here, Macca, in the morning. First thing, it's the it, uh, the image of the of the trees on the water. Um, mm. It's like a mill pond, and and the sun creeps over the top of the hill, and uh, it it is glorious. As you say, it, it's a reward for that early morning alarm call. Yeah, and look, I think you should scratch up a sign um, and bung it up the road there. Uh, God's God's rowing, <laughs> God's rowing course this way. <laughs> well, Macca, we uh, we. Uh, we, we've, as I say, I'm a proud Tasmanian. I live on the mainland, and, and I have to tell you, usually I'm listening to you driving to golf on a Sunday morning, feeling so <laughs> inadequate about what I'm planning to do, and I've been desperate to call you to now give you something relevant to the rest of the country, <laughs> and it's and it's the National Rowing Championships, and so much to be excited about. I know the Olympics is going to be very different back of the, and the Paralympics because of COVID and the challenges, but we've got some outstanding young Australians who want to go onto the world stage and do us all proud, and we're doing everything we can to give them the best possible preparation, and that includes competing and training here at Barrington all week. And the other thing we've, we've forgotten about rowing is, is just fitness because we're grossly unfit um, in Australia, so there's another, there's another tick for rowing. Well, jump on the ergo, Macca. It'll do you good. You'll 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 uh, you'll um, engage about ninety percent of your muscles without any of the, of the hard uh, crunch on your legs or your knees and your exactly. ankles, and you'll yeah. feel and you'll feel better for it. But yeah, uh, yeah look, health and well-being is a big thing for all of us, and I think through the COVID challenges, whether you've been able to get out on the water or for a lot of us, the rowers, the only thing we could do was uh, obviously jump on the ergo and do so indoors. But health and wellbeing has been an important message. And uh, as I say, this week, we're surrounded by that that energy and I'm just uh, privileged to be a part of it. Good on you, Robbo. Talk to you. Thanks, Macca. See you, mate. Bye. G'day, this is Macca. Hello, Macca. It's Wendy here. How are you going? Oh, uh, good. And you? Really well, thank you. Yep. What are you doing? We're just driving. My sister Heather and I are driving on the Newell Highway from Melbourne back to Queensland. We've just been down to celebrate my brother's 60th birthday. Oh, good on you. And, and, you, and that's say, in Melbourne. Sorry. Yeah, in Melbourne. In Melbourne, yeah. yeah. So we decided to drive because we didn't want to go, you know, fly down and go to the airports and things like that because I live in the country just over the border in Queensland at Warwick. Mm. And my sister lives at the Gold Coast. So we've headed down there, had a wonderful time with our parents who are Ina and Neil and Dad will be 95 in May and Mum's 89 in July. So it's been wonderful for me and having to be with our brother Neil and all his family. And um, Look, Wendy, I love a road trip. I don't know about you, but I love a... We do too. <laughs> yeah. 
As long as you not don't have to, you know, be there, you know, at, at half past five this afternoon or something. If you can take your time, I just love a road trip. We really love a road trip too. And it gave us an opportunity to be together and have time, you know, because in this, these busy times we don't uh, have that time to chat. So we've had a marvellous time, Heather and I, being together. Mm. And... Um, but looking forward to getting home, you know, back to Queensland because that's the best place to live, really. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I'm biased or anything. No, no, no. I mean, no, we, no. Grew up in, we grew up in Melbourne and we like to visit. But honestly, with this COVID thing, we've been just so happy to live in Queensland because it's been nothing like what people have gone through in Victoria. Yeah. So we're very grateful for where we live. And I live in the country on a little farm with my husband, Ian, who'll be listening to this. And um, that's even better. You know, we've been just so lucky, so blessed. It's amazing. Do you reckon, yeah, Melbourne really has copped it more than, I mean, I live in New South Wales and, yeah, and I haven't. We have we we had a lockdown, as I said, I think on the fifteenth of March last year. We had a lockdown for I don't know six weeks or something, and that was different. But um, yeah, but basically, um, we've been um, yeah, we've had a wonderful time. Um, you know, except uh, it's it's a different time now that um the COVID's here, and and as I said, a lot of people worry, and you know, because everything's yeah. changed, but. But um, yeah, do you think a lot of people are leaving Melbourne and Victoria and heading <laughs> heading north and and you know not not coming back because of what's happened? Oh yes, oh yes, I certainly do. I read somewhere the other day, and I, look, I'm not going to quote, and I got it, I've probably got it wrong, but I read that 86,000 Victorians are coming to live in Queensland. Now I don't know whether that was in the next year or five years or what, but it was. I did read that somewhere. It could be just made up, but I would believe it. We just see. You know, that so many people are leaving the cities to come and live regionally, like where I live in Warwick or Toowoomba or, you know, those places. They're just growing, well, exponentially, really. And also um, just people want to get back to the country and get away from the city, I think. Yeah, I, I suspect. And um, I, I, look, I don't know. I, I think that's in some ways it's sad, but... Um... But, yeah. I, but I know okay. I, I know there's a little angst in Queensland too because a bloke rang me and says <laughs> we can't park at the bloody beach now. Um, there's so many <laughs> there's so many people. I think that was on the Gold Coast. He was on the Gold Coast somewhere, yeah, which is yeah. a big area. You know, it's eighty ninety yeah. hundred miles long. But um, yes, yeah, I think I think the people in Queensland are noticing the um, increase in population. Yeah. Oh, yes, definitely we are, and we're sort of. We're saying, well, look, you Victorians, you know, just find somewhere else to go, really, because there's enough of us up here. <laughs> and we want it to stay nice and peaceful and, oh, my goodness. But we have no control over that. So welcome, everybody, I guess. <laughs> yeah. All right, Wendy. Well, nice to talk to you. Enjoy your trip. Just take it steady. If you you got any rain there? Oh, we are. Oh, it hasn't been raining since we left Melbourne at 5.30 this morning. Oh. So we've come through some very heavy falls with rain lying in the paddocks. And now it's just eased off a little bit, but it's grey. It's definitely going to rain most of the way, yeah. But we're taking it steady because we want to get home. Yeah. Good on you, Wend. Nice to talk to you. Lovely to talk to you, Ian. Bye-bye now. I'll see you, in, see you in Warwick. Yeah, we saw you in Toowoomba a couple of years ago. We came to the park and saw you, Ian and I, my husband, uh, and that was just lovely for the outdoor broadcast. It was fabulous. Yeah, it was. It was so a lovely time. See you. Yeah, it was lovely. Well, see you, Macca. Thank you. Great show. See you, Wendy. Bye.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.